we will read Philippians chapter 3, <laughs> verses 12 through 16. So Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything else you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, as we gather this morning to worship you, I pray that you would help us in our hearts and in our minds to be at rest in Christ, to strive from our working, to, stri- to, to stop from our striving, rather, to, to, to slow down for a moment, to hear from you and your word, to sing to you, to pray, to enjoy fellowship with one another. I pray that this time would be a time that we can get away from the pressures of the world and that they wouldn't trouble our hearts as they so often do. And so, Lord, as, as we come with that in mind and come with that as our goal to rest at your feet, we pray that you would teach us, that you would help us to observe um, our pressing on, our striving, our Christian maturity, and where we are with, with you in our journey, knowing that it is constantly a journey of your grace. Help us now as we look at your word. Teach us, instruct us, encourage us, empower us for the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. So you have an outline printed in your bulletin. We'll look at verses 12 through 14 first regarding Paul pressing on to obtain the call of Christ. Secondly, we'll look at verse 15 and mature thinking and Holy Spirit revelation. And then lastly, verse 16 by itself regarding holding true to what we have. So last week, Paul talked about rejoicing in the Lord and that knowing him is valued far above all else, all attempts at righteousness, and even embracing suffering in order to know him more. He ended verse 11 with the hope of attaining the resurrection from the dead. This, the checkered flag at the end of the race, is his goal. Paul does not see this as a stroll through the park, ending up at God's house for coffee. Paul presses on to the goal He goes through his life in Christ like a runner competing in a race. This isn't a fundraising social Saturday morning 5K. It's a matter of a determined running from what is past and toward a future of knowing, worshiping, enjoying, and making much of Jesus Christ. It's like Jesus calling Peter and the disciples to the shore to have breakfast. And as they're rowing their boat there, Peter can't help but jump out of the boat and swim the rest of the way. Have you ever noticed that in the Gospel of John? That Peter, everyone else is kind of like, yeah, we'll go have breakfast with, G- with Jesus. But Peter can't even contain himself. He jumps out of the boat and, you know, kind of always imagine that he's not too far from the shore. But he just wants to be with Jesus. He's determined. And so this is what Paul is getting at. Pressing on, as Paul will show us, is a sign of Christian maturity. So today's passage should evoke a question in our hearts regarding our progress today. Judging Christian progress is a difficult process. We at times think we find it easier with each other than with ourselves. 
This person has grown immensely. I see them read their Bible. I hear how they pray. The wisdom I get from their counsel is superb. And then this person has a long way to go. They still seem to struggle to read their Bible regularly. Seems like they don't know all of our traditions and they're only at church sometimes. Fact is, we often judge others' progress based on our own, both positively and negatively. We say things like, they're better at this than I, so I at least can say that they are more mature than I. Or, so-and-so isn't anywhere near where I am regarding this or that issue of Christian life. They must be very immature. It is true that as we progress in the Christian life, we ought to see greater fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We ought to see a greater depth of love for and perhaps an even understanding of the Word of God. Our prayer life ought to be deeper and richer and full of a greater sense of dependence on Him. Jesus taught in John 7, 24, when he was at the temple, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. If we cannot judge by what we see, but rather with right judgment, we must go to the word to learn what that right judgment is. In verse 15 of today's passage, we learn something about a mature believer, that they think in the way that Paul presents in verses 12 through 14. Maturity in Christian life involves endurance. In a day and age where we can opt out of and easily change towns, churches, theological positions, jobs, sadly even spouses or genders, endurance or faithfulness to something is more likely to be shown in someone's Netflix subscription than any other relationship. True Christians or mature Christians, as Paul is getting at here, are those who, whose lives are marked by a persistent, though imperfect, progress. Here we are not given a litmus test of what to look for in ourselves regarding our works, but rather we're given a mindset and an example in Paul. The mature are those of whom Christ has apprehended, and their minds are fixed on answering the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Today, as we rest from our week of working, and as we look to Christ to refresh our hearts, as we enjoy the friendship to be found in the body of Christ, this passage can serve as a time for us to reflect on Christian maturity and the race that we are running towards this great call in Jesus. So verses 12 through 14, Paul makes it very clear that he is not perfect, but he is pressing on to make it his own. And this is an interesting transition for us from verse 11 again, when he says, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He wants to know Christ. He wants to be found in him. He wants to know him in his power. He wants to even know him in his suffering. And then verse 12, it, it's kind of funny. It's almost as if he's giving clarification. He says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. He wants to make it clear that Paul, in having this mindset of looking towards Christ, this is not the goal. This is the journey. Okay, this is the journey. This is the mindset of a Christian. It's not to say, I want to get to a certain point while I'm here on earth and then I have reached Christian maturity, but rather Christian maturity is to be found in those who are continually looking forward to meeting Christ. So Paul then gives himself as an example. Uh, D.A. Carson writes in his commentary on Philippians that if Paul knows that he is a model to be imitated, he also knows that he is a model in transition to greater glory. And so that's what he means when he says, I have not already obtained this, I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Later on in this chapter, we'll see Paul talk about, he'll, he'll call the Philippians to imitate him. Okay, and so he's already kind of building into that idea here as he describes his own Christian journey. 
But at this point, there's nothing in looking to Paul for a model of Christian completion or perfection. The idea of perfection is best understood by us as a matter of completion in this case. Paul does not stand as one with whom God has finished the work he started, but rather he's one on whom God is working into the ultimate transformation of Christ's likeness. It's a process. Truly, as we look to anyone around us today or throughout Christian history even, we'll only see examples of Christian progress. This we'll see in verse 15 is the mark of maturity, recognizing we are in transition from one degree of glory to the next and being motivated by the fact to live a life that shows we are striving to meet that checkered flag ready as we possibly can. Paul shows that regardless of what, we, what he has seen or what he's done, his race is not over and he has no intention of slowing down. Well, why? What's his purpose? Because he hasn't obtained that call yet. He's not already perfect. He hasn't already made it his own. More importantly, he presses on to make the call his own because Christ has made him his own. Is there any greater motivation than there could be to run such a race than to see the one who has saved you from your sin? To know the one who died for you and is alive again? This is Paul's ultimate motivation. I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing, verse 13, I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And John Piper, who we'll quote in a little bit here, uh, has said at multiple points, but um, one once really stood out to me that if you were to go to heaven today and have everything you could ever want, be reunited with loved ones, have all the food, all the enjoyment, all the great, wonderful things that you could ever hope for in heaven, but Jesus wasn't there, would you be satisfied? It's a very, very important question. Because we want to say, no, I'm pressing on to the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is my goal. That's why I want to be up there is because that's where he is, right? But I think oftentimes we think of heaven as a sort of perfection, perfect version of this earth, right? And, and in a sense, that, that's not entirely untrue. But the major difference between here and there is who's really there waiting for us. And that is, of course, Jesus Christ. Paul presses on in his marathon race as if he had just started. Christ has made him his own, and Paul is zealous to know him more. He puts anything behind them that would hinder his pressing on. So for us, we need to look at our lifestyles. We need to look at our priorities and our values. We need to look at anything that would slow down our pace to, towards Christ, and those things must come under submission to that one goal. One of the biggest questions that Christians have is trying to decide what the will of God is for us. And this is one of those passages I think we can look towards. Here's Paul's goal. Here's the will of God for Paul, to press on to answer the call of God in Christ Jesus. Whatever we do on the way there, the jobs that you work, the places that you live, whatever that is, those things are determined based on how they can help you in your race towards Christ. Make sense? all things under submission to the one goal of answering that call. Paul even left behind his Hebrew of the Hebrew status. His accomplishments, the pedigree, he counted it all as loss that he might gain Christ. Any attempts at self-centered righteousness must be left behind. 
Anything that hinders our future progress towards the call of Christ. Consider Paul's example of running in a race that we see here in this passage. Looking back in a foot race can prove fatal. A runner should have no reason to look back to where he has been. There is nothing to be gained by that when the race is entirely about moving forward. Let us remember as well, the gospel is not to be found only at the start of our race, but looking to, learning more of, relying completely on the good news of Jesus is the whole life of a Christian, and it is the whole race of the Christian as well. So, Piper says, you never, 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 and he actually did in the sermon, he did say never more than three times. If you look up the clip, it's kind of funny. He, he said it probably 500 times, it seems like. You never, never, never outgrow your need for the gospel. You don't begin the Christian life with this and then leave it behind and get stronger with something else. God strengthens us with the gospel to the day we die. There's no advanced degree that discludes the gospel for the Christian. We do not move past looking to Christ crucified and risen again. Our Savior to repent of our sins and trust in him alone is the whole life of the Christian. Again, this race is a great illustration, of course, that Paul uses. Christianity begins in the life of a new believer in the way a race begins. Coming to know the gospel and embrace Christ through faith and repentance, a Christian begins a race to the finish line, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the writer of 13 letters that would become part of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was an effective servant of Christ. He freely admits that he has not yet obtained or made it his own. Now, the resurrection of the dead, which he's referring to again in verse, from verse 11, cannot be attained truly or experienced until the moment we breathe our last on this earth, of course. So what is it that Paul means by pressing on? If we believe in Christ, do we not just wait for that day in joy and in hope? Paul's pressing on in his mind is congruent with the zeal he had in persecuting the church before he became a believer, as he expressed in verse 6 of chapter 3, when he was going through his whole list of who he was, what he came from, all of his accomplishments. When he talks about his zeal, he said that his zeal for worshiping God was such that he was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. Now, he thought he was doing God a service, he would say. But in fact, he was not. He was working against what God was working. God wrangled him in, brought him into the fold, and made an apostle out of him. And now, this idea of pressing on, this idea of great zeal that he was using to, to press the church away from what they were doing, he is now using that same passion, that same amount of zeal, that worked against what God was doing, he now works to press on to be a part of what God is doing. Which brings me to an interesting question in my own life. If I consider my life before Christ, what was I passionate for? What was I zealous for? What were my life goals? And once I came to know Christ, did those goals change at all? Did I take that zeal that I had for whatever I wanted to accomplish and apply that to the great commission of pro proclaiming the gospel to the world? Now, as I look back on my own walk, before knowing Christ, I would say I was mostly directionless. I was just getting out of high school, had no interest in college, was just going because everybody else was, and I was a follower. But what I realized is that even though I didn't have a clear goal of career or anything else like that that was tangible, my definite goal, my definite idol was myself. I wanted to do whatever made me happy. 
And so whether we can look back on our life before Christ and see specific things that suddenly turned around and now our goals are directed more towards him, we can all agree that our main priority before Jesus came into our lives was ourself. And so with the same zeal that we would serve ourselves, we ought to work towards serving Christ. But back to Paul for a second. All the things that he'd accomplished before his life in Christ, and now at this point, 30 years into his life in Christ, he had accomplished so much. He had multiple church plants. There were thousands of people that he preached to. He had many people personally discipled. He was imprisoned multiple times. He was shipwrecked multiple times. He was persecuted continuously. Paul, isn't it a good time to slow down? Don't you need to retire? Don't you want to rest? No. Paul's chasing after Christ is not hampered by any of his past accomplishments. He is aiming to attain the purpose for which Christ has called him. And he will not coast to the finish. He will run to it with all the energy he has left. If there was anyone who could sit back and relax until the day of Christ, it would have been Paul. But here we have him saying, I'm pressing on. I'm not letting either my past accomplishments against God or even what I've done in my life in Christ slow down my pace. I'm not looking back and saying, oh, I've already accomplished all these things. God's very happy with what I've done. I'm going to take, take a break. I'm going to ease off on this whole idea of proclaiming the gospel that he's talked about in the beginning of the book or about living a holy life, pursuing Christ more. Rather, he leans into it as he says in Colossians 1, 28 through 29, him we proclaim, that is Jesus, of course, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I know we've looked at this passage in a previous, at a, in a previous message, but it came up again in my mind as I thought about what Paul's goal is here. Why, how is he continuing? I mean, after 30 years of serving Christ, what energy does he have left? It's the energy that God is working in him. He is toiling, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within Paul. And so he is within every member of his church. Today, we ought to consider how we're doing in the race that we're running. In a cross-country team race, runners compete for their own personal record, seeing if they can surpass previous race times, and they run as a team, trying to keep the group together and at the front. We're all individually responsible for the race that is ahead of us, and we're responsible to work out what God is at work within us, as we read in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, knowing that he began a good work in us, and he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Sorry, that's earlier in the book. 2, 12 through 13 was, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because God is at work within you. And we're meant to do this to the completion of the day of Christ until we reach that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In that day, we will finally answer that call. But even so, our Christian life is not a confined one. We are together with each other, the body of Christ, a team running a race together, whose goal is not simply to see the fastest or most mature among us cross the finish line first, but to race together. 
spurring one, one another on to love and good deeds, as we see in Hebrews 10, 24. And I went off of pattern a little bit here and told, took the NIV because when this passage came to my mind, I was thinking about spurring, and the ESV doesn't use the word spur, so forgive me if, you, if you're missing the um, continuity of ESV uh, quotations up here. But the writer of Hebrews says that we ought to consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. So while we're in this race, it's not a matter of, yes, we do look forward, but we look forward with each other and we are meant to spur one another on to keep one another in. So another cross country example, I, you're, you'd be surprised to find out I actually used to run cross country um, and track. Anyhow, I did. And I hated so much of it, but I loved a lot of it. <laughs> One of the things that I hated the most was uh, a game that we would play, and I can't even remember what it's called, but we would start our, our running for the day, our practice, in a line. Thank you. I don't know, that's not politically correct, though. We should probably work that out of the sermon. Let's call it something else, and I'll just, I'll, I'll fit it in there somehow. Anyhow, um, this running game. And of course, the slowest person would be put at the front. At least that's how we played it. And so I was closer to the front than to the back. And the idea was, was that the person in the front led the pack and the person in the very back was meant to catch up to the front and take the place of the front. And then that would continue. Okay. I found every way I could ever drop out of this game as quickly as I could, you know, because this, this was just terrible because it was the whole team. So the fastest runners, and the thing is, is that I wasn't very fast, but I can say that I ran with record-setting fast guys. I mean, they, yeah, they did incredible things. And so this, this game was very short for me, but the idea is, is to kind of take what is a team sport and turn it into a competition to motivate one another, right? Now, now our Christian race is not a one, one of competition in the typical sense where we say one person will be the winners, winner and everyone else will be the losers um, as they fall in behind him. But competition isn't always a bad thing, is it? Sometimes competition can be good. Sometimes we might look at each other and think, I wish I could run as fast as that person. And we might say, because competition is bad and because we should all get a trophy at the end, that we ought not look at one another and compare ourselves and say, oh, well, I, you know, and no, that's, there's a goodness to competition that it makes us improve. So perhaps when we see others progressing in our Christian faith and we think, oh, they're, they're farther ahead than I am or they're so mature or whatever, maybe we should let that be an encouragement to run harder. Not to say, I'm going to get up there and beat him necessarily, although if that's helpful for you, I mean, feel free but to say, there is more that I could be doing. There is more that I could know of Christ because I see that in another person. For me, doing the running game at cross-country practice was mostly a matter of me saying, I'm never going to measure up to these guys. I do not have the same level of commitment, whatever. It wasn't going to happen. But when it comes to the Christian life, we have all said, if we have faith in Christ, there is nothing more important. The, the goal of of this life is to attain the resurrection of the dead and answer the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This idea from Hebrews 10.24 of spurring one another on to good deeds and bringing this, this race idea back together um, kind of completes the idea of Paul that he had from verse 12 of being perfect. So when he talks about perfect and we talk about completion, when we look at it from the side of the illustration he's writing here, he's saying that this perfection is being the crowned victor at the end of the race. 
So if you've been to a cross-country race, particularly one with high stakes like a regional or state meet, runners want to reach the finish line with nothing left in the tank. They want to know that there was nothing else they could have called on to help them, but rather that they'd utilized all they had to run their hardest. So again, back to my own experiences, I wanted to make sure that when I was done, my coach could see that I had run my hardest. Because I knew that even though I wasn't going to be setting records, I did know that the way my coach was going to be impressed and proud of what I had done was if I could finish that race and not stop and say, hey, how do you think I did? Like I hadn't run at all. But rather, even if I could make a dramatic display of keeling over and, and you know, gasping for water and all those kind of things, he could tell when we were putting on a show, but he could also tell when we ran our hardest. So this is what a cross-country runner wants to do. They want to make sure that there's nothing left in the tank. So like what Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, let's run our race with the energy that God is working in us. Don't rely on yourself for the endurance. If you do, you're running a sprint and not a marathon. Look to Christ, who, for the joy set before him, endured even the cross. Lean on who he is, what he has done to keep you enduring through this Christian race that sometimes can be extremely challenging. One of those great challenges is, of course, our sin. We need to leave that behind, as Paul said, setting things, leaving what, I'm sorry, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. One of the great problems of our sin um, is found even in in a a lifestyle of repentance to where we've come beyond those sins and we're we're, we're now, you know, we're we're closer with Christ and and there's some things in our lives that tempted us before that that temptation has greatly weakened, but there's still the fact that it's in our history. And we still often think, oh, but I have this terrible thing in my past. And that's that looking back that Paul's talking about. We need to leave those behind. Because Christ has no intention of us having a pity party over the sins that we've done. Never. Does he want us to be repentant? Absolutely. Should we be sorrowful over our sin? Yes. Should we let it destroy and cripple us? If we're to do that, we're showing that Christ has no power over our sin in our lives. But when I look forward to the upper call of Christ, I can look back on my sin and say, I hate that sin. And it can motivate me to run faster in the race, to press on even more. Because I want to get further away from that. I want my Christian life to be marked more by Christ and less by myself. So I've been saving this one for a while and now I'm going to say say it. A quote by um, Robert Murray McShane is a very popular one where he says, for every look at your sin, take 10 looks at Christ. We sometimes think that the most repentant attitude we can have is to spend hours upon hours looking at our own sin, pouring over our terrible sin, and having what amounts to a pity party over what we've done. But I think the proper way of dealing with sin is to deal with it and then run to Christ. The reality of the marathon that we're running is that temptations will still find their way into our hearts. The world, the devil, and our flesh are still our present enemies. And in fact, as you press on, you will most likely find that those enemies use their best tactics that they can come up with. And just think about the temptation of Christ. Who showed up to tempt Jesus? The devil. The devil, not a devil, not a demon. It was the head honcho. They had to send their best guns against Jesus. And how did Jesus overcome that temptation? Yeah, with the word. I mean, he is the word. So really anything that he said 
was the word of God, right? But what he does for us here by quoting scripture is he shows us how we can overcome temptation, whether it be by the devil or by the world or even by our own flesh. We'll talk about that later because that's actually verse 16. We can only press on if we put off the hindrances, as Paul says in Hebrews 12, 1. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, which this is a different kind of context, I understand, but I think that this is still helpful for us, especially as we consider running this race with each other. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's a great encouragement in this. There's much encouragement in this passage, but one for me is this. First of all, sin clings closely. We know that. If you've been humbled by the great work of Christ at the cross, you know that your sin clings so closely and your flesh reminds you or the world reminds you or the devil reminds you so often of your terrible sin. But it says here that we can lay that aside and run with endurance the race that is set before us. We cannot rely on ourselves whatsoever. We have to rely on he who put us in the race to bring us through that same race. The Holy Spirit, with the power that raised Jesus from the dead, is at work in us, as Titus 2.12 says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So now we come to verse 15, Philippians chapter 3. Here, Paul points out what a sign of true maturity is in a believer, thinking the way he does as he's expressed in verses 12 through 14. Therefore, Christian maturity is marked by enduring the race, motivated by Christ, and pressing on until we meet that upward call. If in any way we think differently, as he says here, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So we can say, hey, look, God is going to reveal to me when I get off track when I start to look behind or when I start to look around or when I start to slow down, whatever that might be, God will reveal this mindset to us as well that the mark of Christian maturity is pressing on to attain the upward call. So how does he do this? He reveals this to us through different means, but I think there are three primary ones and um, just go ahead and try to argue this with me. (laughs) But um, the word, prayer, and fellowship with other believers. If we want to be encouraged by the Holy Spirit, there's our three big things that we have available to us in great measure, I would say. Could God use other means? Sure. These three, though, are the means he has made very clear to us as the main resources of a believer. And in that particular order, I would say, the word, prayer, and fellowship. The word being God speaking to us, prayer being our response to God speaking, and our fellowship, our combined, um, unified mission to make Christ known. The Holy Spirit reveals sin to us, as well as wrong ways of thinking, that may just be a matter of immaturity. And he's at work, sorry, he it is who works through those primary means to reveal truth to us. What if we have some other idea of maturity? God will reveal to us as well. What if we struggle day to day with understanding our progress and our pressing on? Paul makes a great promise out of the end of the sentence. If you think any other way, God will reveal this truth to you as well. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He does this amazing task that Jesus speaks of in John 14. Uh Uh-oh, that's not right. Oh, I skipped one. That's okay. 
That's probably a good thing because I'm running already. John 14, verse 26, uh, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit as the helper whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So he teaches us his word and he reminds us of the word. God doesn't sit on the sidelines of the race, nor does he only do his part. He is with you and in you to will and to work for his good pleasure, as we've seen earlier in Philippians. Look at Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. This race that we're being called to run in is not one that God says, now go, get out of here, go run this race and impress me. Rather, he is in the midst of it to sustain us. Even to go so far as to say he will never permit the righteous to be moved. If we are truly his, there will be no diverting course. He will keep us on course, even in our lowest points. So cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. If you are his, he will hold you up and keep you his. If you're not his, he can make you his, and is faithful to keep you as well. So here comes that quote. I just had it out of order. So um, this Irishman, Mottier, wrote that Paul teaches in this section, sanctification does not permit spiritual abdication. The fact that God is working in us doesn't mean we are passive in our process to Christian maturity. If we are those who give the whole glory of salvation to God, that he is sovereign over the whole process, working and earning all the glory for what we become, we need to commit to working out that salvation in us with a zeal that is consistent with that great truth. So a good theological perspective that believes salvation is an act of God alone does not allow for Christians to be passive adherents. If we believe God is at work in us, we ought to joyfully embrace that truth and press on to see what God is working in us. As you consider gospel opportunities, think less about your ability and much more about God's ability through you. Again, as Colossians said, working with the energy that he works in us. If he's at work in you, find out by working that out. So what do we define at the end of this race? In speaking to the mature, Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, references Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, when he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. It's so good he can't tell you. Let those of us who would seek Christian maturity think in this way. Press on to know Christ, to answer the call, to see him face to face, to see this unspeakable thing that God has prepared for us. Let's end in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Philippians. In light of this, in order to be found faithful in the race, he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Go back to the running illustration one more time and imagine a relay team, which is a whole other social pressure as well when you get put on one of those. Good grief. Anyhow, there are four runners, each apportioned a leg in a race, and given a baton to pass on from the first runner to the last. At any leg of the race, you hold on to that baton like it is your life. If you don't have it when the time for your leg to be over comes, not only you, but your whole team are disqualified from that race. Paul motivated the Philippian church to hold fast to the word of life, so that he would not have run in vain. He said this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 16. And perhaps that illustration would serve us well in that consideration as well. <clears throat> if Paul had run his leg of the race 
and made the handoff only for the Philippian church to drop the baton, then what he had labored for in bringing them to faith would have been useless. So, hold true to what you have attained. Show that what you professed in Christ was true by pressing on to meet him in that upward call. Hold fast to the word of life. You have it available to you so freely. Hold God's word as a precious gift. Depend on it in greater measure than physical food because it is your life. Let your life be marked by a dependence on the word, not a perfect record of daily reading. Let's just shut the book on that whole idea, okay? It is important to read the Bible every day. But if you don't have a perfect record like that, no one does. It's fine. It's okay. Rather, let your life be marked by a dependence on that word. Living a life that shows that there's a difference when you are in the word from when you are not in the word. Live with the mindset of discipline, knowing our weakness and the easy call of distractions. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling at the thought of being without the word. Additionally, have the mindset that when you're hungry, you eat. Be able to recognize your need to interrupt your day as you are able with a look to the word. And if that's not possible, and whatever your situation is on a daily basis, how valuable is having the word stored up in your heart, memorized, that you may recall it and dwell on it, even if just for a moment, in order to reorient your day according to his grace. He has it for you every morning. So hold fast to the word of life. Ralph Waldo Emerson, that's a fun name to say. He's famous for his many writings, and among them, he talks about how life is about the journey and not the destination. But for those who have faith in Christ regarding the matter of their eternal destination, this quote is sorely lacking. Our journey matters. How we arrive at the finish line matters. Will there be any fuel left in the tank? Anything we could have done to enhance our effectiveness? Any opportunity we could have taken hold of? Will we arrive at the finish line in joy and anticipation to meet Christ? All these are important questions about our journey. However, the destination motivates that journey. See, what Emerson is writing makes me feel like there's no hope outside of this life alone. If life is just about the journey and not about the destination, that means the destination isn't much to look forward to. And what Paul says is the complete opposite I'm pressing on. And he's not stopping to smell the flowers and enjoy what's here. There's a lot to be enjoyed here. There's a lot of good in this world. But if those things slow us down, we're just lacking and missing out on a great anticipation. Paul is basically saying, it is better for us to anticipate what we have in Christ than even to enjoy what we have right now. To live in that great anticipation. Not as though to say we are discontented with what's around us right now, but to say that our main purpose is to follow that upward call. So it's not about the journey only. It is also about the great destination. Let those who are mature think this way. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. 